Thank you, and um, thanks, Jackie, for that introduction. I'm not sure about the Queen thing, um, but it's great to be here. I'm sorry I couldn't make it for the rest of the conference, but I have a four-month-old downstairs who's currently being very good, so I feel quite safe for the next hour or so. Um, so it's great to be here. I've seen some cool stuff on Twitter. I hope you've enjoyed the meeting. Um, I was asked to talk to you about something called evidence waste or research waste. Um, we changed the title to make it more sexy, and now I'm a bit worried that it might be a bit negative. It's called irrelevant, irrelevant, irrelevant. Is it time to change um, what we do with veterinary research? I'll come back to that. First of all, I want to give a few disclosures. So the work of the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine has been supported by a number of different people, all listed up here, including our CVS Knowledge. Thank you. Um, at the moment... I am currently funded 100% on the University of Nottingham and a Lancome Animal Health Grant at the University of Nottingham to direct the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine. I've previously been funded by Fort Dodge Animal Health and DEFRA. Um, I work with a lot of different companies, from charities through to pharmaceutical industry, through individual practices and individuals within practice, doing various, various amounts of training on evidence-based veterinary medicine. I'm currently pet-free, so I'm one of those weirdo vets with no animal, but I can't replace the old cat that I put to sleep about a year ago yet. I don't work in a veterinary clinic, but I do work at a university. So that's me, and that will hopefully give you some kind of idea about who I am, where my opinions come from, and potentially where my internal biases arise from. So if you've not been to our website yet or haven't come across anybody from the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine, um, this is what I direct at the moment. I'm currently on maternity leave, so the brilliant Barney Brennan is holding the reins, and the team is still doing great work. We've recently won an award for our work in evidence-based veterinary medicine from the veterinary record, so thank you to them. And I hope that next year, somebody in this room who's out there doing evidence-based medicine at the coalface will be the holder of this award. And if you're interested in pushing your work forward to qualify you for this, then please do have a chat with us, because we'd love to support um, people going forwards. So that's me, and that's where I'm from. So back to what I was going to talk about. By now, you'll have seen lots of definitions of evidence-based veterinary medicine. This is the one that we use. You may well have seen this one already. And we've seen quite a few different perspectives, as far as I can understand, at this meeting about what people think it is, how you can or can't do it in practice, and what everybody's roles are. To me, evidence-based veterinary medicine is about making decisions. Um, and that is the most important thing we do. So whatever you do in your working life at the moment, you will make a decision possibly every five minutes if you work in a very busy practice, potentially once a day if you work in herd health, or maybe once a week if you work in academia. But everybody makes a decision. Um, and ideally, what we want to do is make sure that decision is as evidence-based as it possibly can be. And the reason decisions are more important than any other words potentially in that definition to me is it's not until you make a decision that you actually do something. Okay, so whatever you think you do every day, you do an awful lot of things and you actively decide to do A, B, C or D. If you make an action, then something will change in your patient, in your research, in your company, um, in your charity, whatever you choose to do. And if you work in um, healthcare in any way, when you make a change, you can affect the quality of care. And it's entirely up to you whether you do that to improve care or not. And EBVM to me, is a useless exercise if it remains academic. It has to be put into action. It has to be applied to our decisions to make a difference. Because if we stop at synthesizing and critiquing evidence or merely just collecting data and we don't actually get to the point where we apply it to the decisions that are made, we make no progress at all. So evidence-based medicine makes a difference when we put it into action because that's when we can affect quality of care. And ideally, that's what we should all be about wherever you work. And Abe Lincoln said this, 
I maybe won't be quoting presidents from the US as of next week. <laughs> For a minute, I thought it was going to be last night, but it's next week. Um, but he said, whatever you are, be a good one. And that's basically, in this country, when we sign up to the RCVS, that's what we're signing up to. They just make us say a few more words. But be a good one. And if you do evidence-based veterinary medicine, then there's a chance you'll be a better one. So back to this. Um, there's lots of different words here. And obviously, to make decisions, it involves a highly qualified clinician. And that's what you are. And you are the most valuable thing um, in evidence-based medicine because you are the person that is able to act. But ideally, what we need is good evidence, ideally the best evidence we can get. And there's been quite a bit of chat about that in the program in the last couple of days. But what we also need is relevant evidence. And certainly, um, the reason we changed the title of my talk maybe suggests that we're in a bit of a problem with this in veterinary medicine at the moment, is finding evidence that is relevant to those decisions that we make every day. So, it's a little bit depressing, this title, I realise once I actually started to write the talk. So really, is this talk going to be hugely pessimistic. Um, I decided to use selfies and, you know, be young and trendy, and then I realized the size of this screen, and I hate photos of myself, so I'm mostly going to look this way. But she's going to show up from time to time, this pessimistic old cow that thinks everything's broken and we're not going to make any difference. But those of you that know me know this is far more my state of mind. We have to be optimistic about this if we are going to move forward and make a difference. So hopefully she will pop up more often, and maybe you'll remember the one on your right better than the one on your left. Um, we have to, though, accept, and I do, because I read a lot of it, that some research is downright awful. Um, some of it is totally crazy and nuts, and you think, when will I ever, ever use that in any part of our profession or research? Um, and what that means is that evidence-based medicine and decision-making at times can be difficult and not necessarily evidence-based. And that means our actions aren't necessarily optimal. And we have to admit to that. Until we admit to that, we can't accept change and push our quality of care forward because it might well be that our quality of care is suboptimal and that's not what any of us want. But we have to admit that it can be improved if we're going to make a change. So where are we in terms of how good or how relevant our evidence base is at the moment? Well, uh, Manya and I were delighted to see that the lovely, eloquent David Williams from the University of Cambridge wrote a letter to the Vet Record couple of months ago now, because he'd read Best Bets for Vets in the vet record. Hooray! At least one other person other than Marnie, Hannah and I, and maybe Connie, have actually read Best Bets in the last couple of months. If you haven't come across Best Bets, how many people have heard of Best Bets? Ooh, let's remain optimistic. Who hasn't? Excellent. You're my favourite people right now, because there's an opportunity here to um, go and have a look. So please do go and have a look at this website. What it is, it's a collection of very simple, basic evidence summaries or knowledge summaries or critically appraised topics based around a very particular clinical question. And those clinical questions have arisen from practice either through our students, the clinicians we work with at the university or out there in practice who want to know what the evidence-based medicine, the evidence is behind certain decisions they have to make. Like do, in cats with chronic kidney disease, do prescription diets improve their survival time? In cats with toxic mastitis, does enrofloxacin affect clinical recovery? We work across a lot of different things, but the idea is that we do a structured search to answer that question, if we can, and we come up with a bottom line. We publish one bet a month on our website, and every quarter we publish a couple of them in the veterinary record. They're open access, so you can read them um, either online or in the veterinary record whenever you wish. But David had read... Um, this and in his letter he was disappointed as were we we feel your pain um, 
bit of miserable face going on here, that we spend a lot of time searching two databases, trying to find the answer to the question, and both of the bets on that occasion only came up with one paper. And what he was suggesting is, does this mean we've got shortcomings in evidence-based veterinary medicine, and can we make a worthwhile conclusion on one paper, or can we make a decision based just on one paper? And I know there was some talk yesterday about individual studies and bias. Should we be doing that? Well, Marnie and I chatted about it. You know, I thought about it at three o'clock in the morning when I was awake, because I'm always awake at that time in the morning at the moment. How do we respond here? Somebody did. Is he in the room? Hey, look, you get her face, okay? (laughs) So the fine gentleman in the pink shirt at the back responded. Um, We've never actually met, but I thought you'd be here because you're talking later. Um, Ian's response was, get up, get out there, and let's find answers to the questions ourselves then. Nice one. An optimistic approach to what we've got here. We have to build the literature and we have to do it well. Indeed, we do. We have to build high-quality, relevant literature and we have to become involved ourselves. Marty and I then did get our act together and wrote a letter and highlighted some of the issues that perfect evidence is rarely available. But you can be an evidence-based veterinary medicine decision-maker in the absence of evidence so long as you know there's an absence of evidence because that's what it's about. It's about knowing how good the evidence base is and what that evidence base is telling you currently about what the right or wrong thing is to do. But clearly, we have a shortcoming in good, relevant evidence um, because, I'll show you in a second, we often don't come up with many papers that actually address the common clinical conundrums that we have. So the current situation in terms of this irrelevant evidence is um, we may have a problem, but we can't affect the questions. The questions walk into your consulting room, your library, your company, your email inbox, the yard that you walk onto, on the farm that you work on every day. You can't help what people want to know, yourself or your clients. Um, They are going to ask those questions. We can't adjust the questions because of the evidence base. Potentially, we have to do it the other way around because we can affect the answers. We can potentially affect the evidence base that is available to us to answer these clinical conundrums. And, and we can do that by good quality research, but it's completely useless if, it is no, if it's not relevant to the situation in which we work. And if we do that, we will avoid this phenomenon called evidence waste. And that was in the title of my original less snazzy title that Claire and I thought we could, or Kate and I thought we could do something with. Um, but there's this thing called evidence waste or research waste, which is what I thought we should start to talk about. Has anybody been to this website before? Net has. Groovy. Take a picture. These, the lectures will all be online, I think, anyway. But um, the Reward Alliance are a really interesting place to go and have a look if you want to stir yourself up or, or talk with colleagues about potentially how we can elicit change. But um, Miserable Lady is back again um, because they reckon in medicine, 85% of research is wasted. So that's either because it doesn't answer the right question, it's not of decent enough quality, um, or it's not published, or if it is, it's poorly published, so it's very difficult to use. Not very pretty reading. So what can we do about this? And that's what the Reward Alliance has set up to have a look at. And maybe we need some kind of Reward Alliance or some kind of um, initiative to help us address this problem. So what can we do? As people in this room, I'd just quite like to do a bit of a poll. I know you've probably put your arm up in the air a few times um, in the last couple of days to explain who you are. But if you would describe yourself as a researcher, can you put your hand in the air, please? Quite a few. How about if you fund research? Put your hand in the air. Right, those are the people to jump on afterwards, okay? Hiya, everybody. Hi. No, I won't. Um, you're allowed to be more than one of these things. Put your hands up if you publish research, okay? Put your hand up if you are a publisher of research, as in a journal. I can see one. She is the only one. Welcome. How about if you're a research user? 
That was mostly everybody. So maybe there's something relevant out there that we use. But when we think about rectifying the situation and avoiding evidence waste, what we need to think about is whose responsibility it is to help us um, move forward positively in the future. And everybody potentially has a role in that. So the Reward Alliance have come up with this reward statement, and it's something that we should potentially start to consider in veterinary medicine as part of our EBVM movement. And they love a good acronym in medicine. I can't remember it, so I have to write it up there. So reward stands for reduce... You have to shout the first bit of the word reduce because you need the capital E. Reduce waste, reduce research waste and reward diligence. Okay, so it's a little bit positive at the end. I think it's a bit of a stretch to make reward out of those words. But anyway, what they say is that we believe we have a responsibility not just to seek to advance knowledge, but also to advance the practice of research. This will contribute to the improvement in health and lives of all people everywhere. They go on to say, as funders, regulators, commercial organisations, publishers, editors, researchers, research users and others, pretty much everybody, um, we commit to playing a part in increasing the value and reducing waste in research, um, which is a very strong statement, um, but it's hard to find fault in that. If you're interested in this sort of stuff, um, if you go to The Lancet, if you go to their website and go to the campaigns um, part of their website, they've got some really interesting stuff about research efficiency and how they're starting to apply it. And most of us that work in evidence-based medicine, we spend our life looking at medicine and working out how we can nick the good idea, adapt it, and put it into veterinary practice. But um, some of the information they've got on there, if you're having a rough day and you're feeling quite depressed about the world, um, that is definitely a thumbs-up, Rachie, kind of website to go and have a look um, because they're doing some really interesting things. Um, what they do do is they don't stay miserable about the 85% of research waste. What they're doing is also going, right, what can we do about this? And the first step towards it, they reckon, is trying to um, monitor the problem and work out how big it is and then create solutions to fix it. Great. So just pointing out the problems is a very easy thing to do. Trying to find the solutions is much harder, but that is what some of their work is fo focused upon. So do you think we have waste in veterinary research? I could hear a yes. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> some louders. Some people not wanting to make eye contact. That's absolutely fine. Um, do we need to worry about this? And if there is a problem, what is the solution and how are we going to fix it? So if we look at the research waste, there are kind of four main areas where um, in the research process that you might waste an awful lot of research. And this isn't in any particular order, but I think the first one is really important, which is that the research addresses the wrong question. Then there might be poor study design and execution. There might be poor reporting or a lack of reporting or... If you've got the first three right, then there's a lack of access to the people that need to use the evidence that make the decision or a lack of awareness about it. So they look at looking at the problem, trying to work out where we are and looking for solutions at all of those four levels. And I'm just going to briefly talk through them. We don't have time to go into much detail, but we'll leave some time for questions at the end to explore these further. But whatever one you are in terms of a researcher or a user of research or a publisher of research or whatever you are, think about um, these as I talk through them. So if we look at the wrong question, so if research answers the wrong question, clinicians can't use it. And there's been some really interesting stuff in medicine. The Ian Chalmers, one of the gods of um, evidence-based medicine, did this work and published it in The Lancet in 2012. And he looked at the research that was done that involved just academics, and then he looked at the research that was done that involved end users, so clinicians and patients, and found that the questions or the research agenda that was set um, by the two different groups were really quite different. 
So what academics are interested in potentially in medicine is different from what people that work at the coal face and make those decisions that affect quality of care um, are. But it's, it's a really interesting read. And he's moved on from systematic reviewing where he started and has moved into this participation in research of the right stakeholders. So do we have a problem in veterinary medicine? If so, can we audit? Is Mr. Viner in the room? No, I put the word in audit for him. He's not here. Katie's not either. But anyway, I thought, yes, I can audit for once. A small little audit. This is kind of interesting, Marley and Hannah. But I did. I audited Best Bets for Vets. We have 53 published bets on our website at the moment. And I thought I would have a look at them and see if I can use any of the data on there to suggest whether we have a problem in addressing the wrong question in research, particularly because of those sets of letters that are in the back of the veterinary record. So... I put some numbers in for the epidemiologists in the room that like numbers. I put all of the averages in so you can look at your arithmetic mean, um, your median and your mode. But basically, in the 53 bets we've done, we've used 81 papers to answer those 53 clinical questions. So on average, whichever average you look at, there's about one paper per question. Okay, but there is a range. It goes from nothing to four. That's a cattle bet. Yay for farm animal medicine. Um, these are quite simple, specific questions. We're not saying best bets are perfect. Um, and clearly, we have some questions. We actually have a lot of questions, but only three on the website at the moment. Where is there, there is no evidence base. Do you chuck antibiotics into the abdomen of a cow after you've done a C-section? Should you give tramadol to dogs? And the third one is um, oral hematoma treatments in um, dogs. So we have some where there's none. The two databases that we searched to answer that question are Medline and Cab Abstracts. And there is some overlap. So some of the papers that we find in Medline, we will find in Cab Abstracts. And so to get to those 81 papers, if you add that up, we've searched through nearly 9,000 papers to get to 81 that matter. Okay. There's lots of reasons why not all of those 9,000 papers end up in a bet, because you can never do the perfect search. We try and be as specific as we can. And a lot of the papers, you look at it and go, oh, I've got another paper. And then you read it and you think, no. Actually, that doesn't do what I want it to do. So if you're sitting next to a weeping lady at the moment, it might be Marnie or Hannah that have done an awful lot of best bets, or it might be somebody else in the room that has spent an awful lot of time trawling through what they hope is relevant literature to find nothing, maybe four papers if you're lucky to answer the question. So this would maybe suggest... Um, that there is some research being done out there, pertinent to the topics that we're interested in, but not quite answering our clinical questions. No audit is perfect. So what's the solution? I think there's lots of different things we could do. And it seems in this conference we've talked a lot about practice-based research, which is awesome, because that will start to collect more pertinent data to where the majority of decisions are made. People have talked a lot about collaboration and involving owners and clinicians in the research agenda. What we did at Nottingham as part of my master's was we thought, well, let's see what happens when we involve um, stakeholders in the research agenda for a particular topic. So um, for my master's, I worked with the James Lind Alliance, that I believe was um, mentioned this morning, who are primarily there to work with doctors and patients to ask them what they want to know about certain diseases. And to be involved in the research agenda, you need experience of it. So you need to be a patient that's suffered from the disease or you need to be a doctor that deals with it. Um, and what they try and do is come up with a list of questions about stroke, about diabetes, about end-of-life care, about paediatric care, whatever, that they need the answers to, to help them make decisions about their patients or about themselves. And so what we did was we got a group of people together that are either are vets with experience of treating chronic kidney disease in cats or owners. That's my clinical interest and also an area where people frequently ask questions about what's the best treatment for their old cat that doesn't want to take anything. Um, 
So we looked at what would happen if we developed questions around the treatment of chronic kidney disease. And the top three questions came up are these. You can go onto our website. If you look in the practice-based research, you can find the top 10 questions that this group of people brought up. The top one is the Holy Grail. What is the single best treatment, if we did it on its own, would, um, would help cats with chronic kidney disease? Then they really want to know whether diets improve the life of cats with chronic kidney disease. If you don't work in small animal medicine, a lot of people would say that is our first choice therapy. And actually, of all of the treatments, it probably has the biggest evidence base. And certainly, we, the evidence base would suggest you live longer if you're a cat with CKD that lives on those diets. But our owners and vets were far more interested in the whole of the cat, whether it was happy, um, what its quality of life was like, as well as its quantity of life, which is why we used that phrase, improve the life. And I love the third one. We all, if you own a cat or have worked with cats, you know they hate to do what you want them to do and they certainly don't want to eat any poison that you put down for them. So what do you actually do if the best recommended treatment, the animal won't go anywhere near it? And that is one of the common questions that we're all asked clinically. There is no evidence base um, for these questions up here. So there are some ways of starting to address the research agenda and potentially alter the way that um, we ask questions in research. Um, but who really, at the end of the day, has responsibility for this? Who do you think, across this room, has responsibility for adjusting the research agenda so we answer the right questions? Whose responsibility is it? You don't have to say mine. If you believe the reward statement, it's all of us. So I, I, we talk to lots of people at the centre about evidence-based medicine and the frustrations that they have. And I think a lot of the time, practitioners, or vets and nurses, and clients think they don't have a voice and don't have a say. You do. Um, and you can get involved, and there's a prioritisation project going through our CVS Knowledge as well. There are things that you can do that will start to make a difference. And until your voice is heard, our decisions won't get any better. So, moving on to the next bit, which is poor study design. Do we have a problem? Do we have a problem with study design in um, veterinary medicine and veterinary literature? Yeah. Yeah, there's a few weeping people in the room already. Um, can we audit it? Well, I could, but it would have taken forever. And I can think about things at 3 o'clock in the morning, but I do not turn my computer on, you'll be pleased to know. But I thought I'd just look at the study weaknesses in Best Bets for Vets, because it starts to give you an idea if you look through them. If you want to start to learn about the basic things that you need to know about when evidence is good or bad, is look at the study weaknesses that we produce in Best Bets for Vets, and they're fairly consistent. So we have one here that talks about no power calculation, small sample size. That was about the cat one about diet. If we look at the study weakness, I thought, okay, I'll change species, so I changed cows. And again, we have sample size problems, no effect size chosen. And then we have problems with randomization and blinding. So I okay, I'll change the subject again. So I moved on to a dog best bet, and I promise I chose this one at random. And this time, the authors are really confused. The study design is so bad, they don't know whether it's um, a cohort study, a case control study, or a retrospective case series. It's very difficult to appraise and know the evidence if you don't understand the study design. So we have problems there. So what is the solution? Happy Rachie face, not miserable, because you can get quite miserable when you start looking at an awful lot of bad research when you want to make a difference. Well, I think, first of all, we all need to admit that we don't know something. I managed to become a specialist in my field before I'd done my PhD, and I didn't know any of this. I was making high-level clinical decisions, talking to lots of clients, teaching lots of students. Nobody brought this up with me terrifying. I realized once I started my PhD with Vicky Adams and learned some epidemiology. Also, don't assume everybody else knows. The commonest thing I hear from vets is, I don't know how to appraise evidence. I assume if it's published, it's good. Don't, okay? 
Hopefully, the peer review process helps get rid of some of it, but we know everything that we look at in Best Bets is published somewhere, and we know the quality isn't always good. So don't assume everyone else knows. Also, don't assume, because somebody's got a big, long string of letters after their name or whatever, or they're a doctor or a prof or whatever, that they know more than you do, because that's not necessarily the case. It's my 20-year reunion. I know I don't look old enough, but it was last weekend, and um, I wasn't taught any of this. Whereas any young graduate from Nottingham, Bristol, and a lot of the other vet schools now, they do get taught this. Learn some new skills. We can always learn something new. Um, and potentially this is more valuable than learning yet another um, way of fixing a cruciate. And hope that everybody else around you is learning as well. It can, it's getting easier and easier. There's more and more resources out there. So we can start to solve this problem. An adulterated bit of advertising. If you want to learn some more skills, we've got a modular course running at the moment, which is very um, one-to-one. Um, course it runs over three three sessions um, and you can work with our team to learn more of these skills and the idea it's very applied to practice so have a word with Marnie or go to our website there are many opportunities like this one we're speaking to the converted here because you're all here but there are more and more opportunities to learn new skills so who has responsibility well we all have responsibility for ourselves that's what we do um, when we um, join the Royal College and elect to make decisions about the care of our patients and want to improve the quality. And a lot of people say that it should be the researchers that know what they're doing. We can't rely on them to always know what they're doing. Um, So we have some responsibilities as decision makers, what we choose to use to make those decisions. And I'll take us back to this. If we're going to improve study design, it's not just about writing a whole load of systematic reviews and slating everything that's there. It's about trying to make a difference. Go back to that letter that Ian wrote in the vet record, get up, get started, and do something better. So how about poor or lack of reporting? Um, Well, do we have a problem? Oh, yes, this is me going, oh, why didn't they just write down how they randomized? Or why didn't they just tell me how they selected their cows? If you just wrote it down, even if you didn't do it, say you didn't do it, but I would have a better idea. But at the moment, if you don't write it down, we don't know what's going on. So we do have a problem. With reporting, why do we have a problem? So we did a survey of editors of um, veterinary journals, and we asked them about reporting guidelines. If you've not come across reporting guidelines in your world yet, whoever you are, whatever you do, go to the Equator Network, um, Equator spelt the way you normally spell it, um, and have a look. And basically, it's a list of checklists that when you're a researcher and you're writing up your research as a paper... You go, okay, yeah, that was my aim. I've written that in my paper. This is how I selected my patients. I've written that. This is how I wrote about randomization. I've put that in my paper. Um, Annette at the back, who spoke yesterday or the day before, she's been involved in adapting some of that to farm animal settings. So we have some veterinary reporting guidelines too. And if you're new to writing up research um, or reading research, these reporting guidelines are really useful. I wish I'd had them when I first wrote my first scientific paper because I didn't know what I was doing. I should have known what I was doing. My supervisors were very learned and great, thank goodness. But if I had a checklist of things I was supposed to write down, it would make life much, much easier. But when we surveyed um, this gang of people, about 80 people responded. Only half of the editors-in-chief had heard of them, and only a third of them told their authors when they were submitting papers that they should use them. We chose editors because we didn't know really how to get hold of reviewers, authors, and readers. Everyone needs to know about reporting guidelines. It's not just the people that are reporting research and publishing that reported research. Um, But if you're a reviewer of papers, I wish I'd had this the first time I reviewed a paper. I didn't know what was good and what was bad. But if you use this checklist, it makes your life much, much easier. We can all use them. Lack of reporting is harder. How do we measure what's what's not there? This is me feeling guilty. 
Everybody in this room that does research has that list of things that you never quite get to. I'm looking at a couple of people that I have papers with that need to be published. They're smiling at me. They still love me. That's good. Because we are all busy work, it's got many things to do. But there is, everybody has it sat on their desk, stuff they really love that for some reason doesn't get prioritized to be reported. And it's a problem. We do stuff. We find interesting stuff out. We don't share it. It's no use if we don't share it. So what is the solution? Well, editors thought reporting guidelines should be used by everybody. So maybe if we had more stringent requirements for the way we publish veterinary literature, we would get better at reporting. So maybe if we're going to challenge this part of research waste, maybe poor reporting is easier than lack of reporting. Lack of reporting, what's the solution? Well, do we need to look at the peer review process? It can be a very slow and onerous process. doesn't necessarily improve the manuscripts, I don't feel, all of the time. But surely somebody needs to look at our science before we blat it out there. But if everybody got good at critiquing science, can't we all just chuck it on a website and see what happened? Are there other options? So if you're not going to get around to writing that peer-reviewed paper, can you put your results somewhere else? Is there somewhere you can put it so if somebody gets interested, they can read those results without wrecking your career? Should we publish research abstracts? There's lots of research abstracts produced at conferences. A lot of them never end up online or open access. And some of those um, bits of science may never get to a fully published paper. But if we could read something, would that help? Do we need different forms of academic recognition? We are very much, when we work in academia, judged on the amount of grants we bring in and the number of peer-reviewed published papers we produce in the Lancet or Nature, which is zero for me. But um, we are judged on that. Should we be judged on getting our results out there rather than the form in which they are easily ticked off on a checklist? But all trials started, it's still very embryonic at the moment. If you haven't been to the website, go and have a look. This was um, an idea that was hatched at the RCVS Knowledge Meeting two years ago, um, getting a gang of people together to say, can we find a way of getting all of the research data from trials published? Um, we need help. It's still on the list of things that need to be done, um, but this potentially could be a way of getting more trial results out there. Or do we just need to torture people into telling us what they found out and make them write those papers? I don't know, give them some more booze and get them going. Do we need to do something? Is it a carrot or a stick to get more stuff published? So we do have a problem. Whose responsibility is it to reach some of those solutions? Well, again, I think we all need to see that we all have a role. And even if you're just a user at Just, if, you, if on that list of things you're just a user, you don't actually do any research yourself, you have potentially a responsibility to make some noise. If you know somebody's done a study and you've been involved with it, phone them up and say, Rachel, no, you haven't published it yet, but what do you find out? And I'll go, here's my PhD thesis, or here's some stuff that we've done so far. And hopefully we can make more and more of that open access. But we need to become more demanding. As a group of clinicians and a group of um, clients and people that own animals, we need to be more demanding of these research results, particularly if you've got involved with it. If somebody asks you to be involved with research, if you are a practitioner or somebody that participates but doesn't actually do the research, Ask them where it's going to be published and when you're going to get the final report so you can use it to change your practice. So the fourth bit is this lack of awareness and lack of access to um, information. So that's where the wastage is really the biggest shame. So you've done everything else right, but it still doesn't get to the hands of the decision makers so cannot impact quality of care. Um, some places you go, you just cannot get in. You really know there's a really good paper somewhere and you cannot get in. There's nothing more frustrating than that. Go to Google Scholar, see if you can find a translate of it somewhere else. Sometimes people have put it into Japanese and you can get it back in English and then you can read it. Is that being recorded? Probably. Anyway, I'm sure it's fine. Um, and it's the biggest, one of the biggest things that we get asked about. I know there is a problem with access to information and we need to carry on talking about it to try and make a difference. And it is incredibly frustrating um, 
that we don't have as much access of, as we want to. You can't take a horse to water, so some people just won't listen. And um, we've been at the centre now for heading up for eight years. You know, we've had hate mail, hate tweets, hate all sorts of stuff who believe the idea of EBVM is insulting. They don't need any of this. They know it all already. Give up on those people. Say thank you very much for your email. Move on. Work with somebody that is willing um, to at least listen. Listening to the evidence doesn't mean you have to change. So everybody should listen. It's then up to you whether you change your practice and your quality of care or not. So what is this solution? And um, as I say, this is a short talk, but it was just to uh, provoke some ideas. I came across this on Twitter last week. Did anybody else know about this? The journal in the room went, yes. Did librarians know about this? Yes. Did very normal people know about this? Armani did. I'm just on maternity leave. I don't know. But I found this on Twitter and thought, this is lush. So they have, they committed for this particular week, it was last week, not this week, but maybe this should be our week, about trying to make as much as possible um, open access. So maybe we need a, a particular open access week in veterinary medicine where we all aim to publish open access that week or make something open access. So if you don't have time and you're the stressed out researcher to write it, write a blog, put something up on a, a website with some data attached to it. So maybe that's the solution. The lack of awareness is tricky. Um, we're all here, I hope, because we want to make a difference and make our decisions better. But, and we can help with evidence-based medicine, but only if you keep going all the way through the evidence-based medicine cycle and don't just stop at, yeah, all the research is rubbish. People still have to think about um, the research and make a decision. And maybe journals can... They're, they're changing all the time the way they produce research in terms of summaries and... Um, not producing the whole paper, but giving somebody something easy to read. We use social media an awful lot more. The regulators of research in our profession maybe have a role to play in improving how well um, people have to listen to research. Maybe we can change the way we do PhDs, change the way we teach. And as practices and individuals, we can also potentially find different ways of us all doing a little bit more because everybody's short of time. But if we all did a little bit more, we'd all become a bit more aware. So again, I think we all have responsibilities to play to reduce evidence waste. So right now, we have a problem, and we don't know how big it is. But the best bit about having a problem, this is why I do medicine, maybe this is why we all are vets, we see something broken and we like to fix it. And maybe now is the time to fix some of the veterinary research that we have. It's not going to be easy. Training as a vet is not easy. Um, doing practice every day is not easy. But again, if we all do a little bit, we can potentially make a lot of a difference. And we have a responsibility, whatever you do, wherever you are, to our patients to make sure that our actions are based upon a relevant, good quality evidence base wherever we can. We're not going to do it for everything overnight, but we can all do a little bit more. So I always like some quotes, and I started with Abe Lincoln. And I like this one. I've no idea who Roger Crawford is. But he said, being challenged in life is inevitable, being defeated is optional. And um, certainly being involved in evidence-based veterinary medicine is a challenge, um, but it's a good one. And the more and more of us that get involved, the better the difference we can make. And I love this one. No idea who C.B. Cook is, but she, he says, on our own we're marshmallows and dried spaghetti, but together um, we can be something much bigger. And there was a lot of um, collegiate stuff being talked about, particularly on the first day of this conference. Um, I've no idea what kind of drugs this person was on, but I kind of get what they mean. You can't get anything more different than dried spaghetti and marshmallows, but if you put it together, maybe you'll get something interesting. I wouldn't try it. Um, whenever I look for inspiration, I go to this gentleman here who is as mad as he looks singing to a snowman as he was last Christmas. Um, but if you want to start your course in 
how to do something when it feels that life is difficult. Read this editorial in veterinary dermatology. And he talks, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. So we're better off doing something than sitting there as that miserable Rachie face going, this is awful and irrelevant, let's try and do something about it. So I'd like to thank all of these people, particularly RCVS Knowledge for asking me to speak, my team for being brilliant and award-winning and carrying on whilst I've been on maternity leave, and all of the people that work with us for our research and our funders. And my big sis, at the age of 43, I'm still reliant on my big sister who's downstairs pushing my four-month-old son around. So thank you very much, and if there's time, I'll take questions. So thank you, Rachel. Um, I think we've got time for a couple of questions. If we have... Yeah. Thank you. Rachel, that was brilliant, and hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Um, so uh, just as a preface, um, when I look at our literature for small animal medicine, much of it is generated as resident research projects, and they have particular constraints in that they need short-term outcomes um, in prospective trials or often end up doing retrospective chart reviews. So there are a couple things that happen there. Often there's a, a true bias which makes stuff not as applicable to GP practice. We're seeing the same conditions, by the way, but we're just not able to do or sometimes do things differently. The other thing is that the use of surrogate markers because of the short-termness. I look just out of curiosity because there are only 14 papers in PubMed on oral hematoma. At last count, there were more than 200 on thromboelastography in cats and dogs because it is a nice little marker that you can write a pre project. So anyway, as a preface to that, and I'm sorry to make it so belabored, what do you think the role of our residency training programs and certification is in changing? What is their role in this? Nice question. Thanks, Connie. Um, I currently don't train residents, so I'd just like to point that out because I know there are people in the room that do across all the different species. Um, I have worked alongside residents, helped support them in the past, but currently I don't do that at the moment. Yes, it is a problem because at the moment a lot of the criteria to get your specialist status is to do some kind of research project and it's time limited and we all know time is a problem in research. Um, so I can see how the problem arises and you're right. We end up doing things that are easy or a whole load of samples in the freezer or looking backwards rather than forwards. So if the European colleges and the American ones are different, I think, she says, looking for some of them. But there's different requirements depending on where you work in the world. But if one of the requirements is to do clinical research, we probably need to be a bit clever about the way we do that joined-up thinking. If we know in the next 10 years we're going to get another three residents through feline medicine, think about those projects three years before they start and try and have joined-up ones and use larger, bigger, useful existing data sets like SAVSnet or VetCompass in this country um, that means you can use more data in a shorter period of time rather than trying to do something new and reinvent the wheel every time. One of the other, so I, I would say we need more planning as we always do in research and adding up the projects together. And some people do that really effectively. And at the end of a 10-year period, you have a nice little evidence base on something. I can't even say that thromboelastic word. And I've never used it in a patient, but I do know what oral hematoma is. So it would be, so we need to think about planning better and joining those resident projects up. So at the end of 10 years, we have something more useful Potentially, we also need to look as if we're doing a clinical training, do we train our clinicians in research by making them do a project that might be suboptimal, or do we give them a rigorous training in how to avoid evidence waste, how to use evidence instead, and maybe if they want a research training, they go on to do a research degree. My problem with that is if we're not careful, we end up with 
highly qualified clinicians over here that have no experience of research. And I think that would be a shame. So, yes, it's a challenge, but I think we need some joined-up thinking either within schools, between schools, between countries, or we need to alter what we want our end product to be. We want them to be able to do research. If so, we need to train them properly. If we want them to be aware of research and be good clinicians, get them really highly trained in evidence-based veterinary medicine techniques and get them out there as good clinicians and get them able to contribute to research in the future. I don't know if there's anybody in the room that trains residents has anything to add. John, is he allowed? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I think I think there is some education of the colleges to to is needed because we recently had a resident who did a systematic review, and the credentials committee of the college said we're not sure we'll accept that as a, as a you know decent enough paper because it was a review. And it was great paper. <laughs> yeah, and it, we have that problem in PhDs. So part of our PhDs now they start off doing a systematic review. You've got to know what's known already before you can start. And I argue with the postgraduate committee that yes, of course that's research, but. But that's why we're here to change stuff. And systematic reviews, maybe if you know you've got a resident for three years, are a really good kind of project. And your first resident should do the systematic review. Your second resident should do some feasibility studies about if the review didn't answer the question, you can then move on. But I think it's a great starting point. We have um, applied for money as a gang of international educators in evidence-based medicine to try and start to lobby some of the colleges around that thing. And I think, um, again, that could be a campaign that we look at to try and influence how we train our specialists of the future because they are our teachers of the future um and also we don't want our specialists outstripped by our brilliant young graduates that actually have been taught some of this stuff um so yeah i think Annette. okay i think we've got time just for one more question uh, it's a fantastic talk i really enjoyed it i'm glad um, you i just wanted to ask you about uh this issue of the file draw problem and research is not publishing there's been a discussion about um Funding agencies withholding research, you know, you're not eligible to, to apply for any more money until you have published your prior study. Of course, that, that's quite complicated because publication takes a while, etc. But that's being discussed in the US that you either won't get ethical approval from your institution or you won't get approval from the funding agency unless you can document that you have a plan and you're not sitting on these studies. And I'm wondering if there's any talk about that here in the UK. Um. There is, I mean, certainly when you apply for money, they want to know what your evidence base is for answering the question you're applying money for. I haven't yet come across the, you have to have published this, but we often have to confidentially release the information if it's not published. Um, I don't know whether anybody else in the UK has had that experience where they've been knocked back because they haven't published the previous study. Nobody's nodding or waving at me. So maybe we're not there yet. And I think if that's... That, that's good because it promotes publishing. Obviously, we then have stressed out, oh, God, how do we fit everything in? And also, the timeline isn't always dictated by us. It's dictated by reviewers. Um, finally got an answer from BMJ this morning. They want a little bit more done, but that paper's been in for two years now. And we respond as quickly as we can. Um, so it's not always dependent on us. Um, and it's whether we can get people to accept that the final tarted article up on the internet or in a journal is actually the most useful step and you're actually holding evidence holding progress back by waiting for that process so some of it's either convincing the people publishing to do it quick because you need the money and some people do that across Europe for trying to get papers published so people can sit their European diploma exam so it does happen you can influence the journal Um, but it's also potentially talking to funders about other ways of publishing those results but again we then fall into that in academia that we 
we don't get points for writing a lovely, fancy website that actually gets to the people that need the research. We don't necessarily get points for that. We get points for publishing that paper and getting that grant money in. So as far as I'm aware, we don't have it per se, but it's under the, there's an undercurrent of proof that you actually know something about this before we fund you again. But maybe your challenge is coming our way. And if it's another stick, and a stick is what people respond to, and money is important to research institutions, then maybe it will push the research forward. I'm an optimist, you see. Maybe it's a good thing, Annette. Sounds horrendous, but maybe it's good. Okay, so we have to break now for lunch, and I'm sure if you, I'm sure Rachel will be around Hopefully. for a little bit Hopefully. longer, baby permitting. Can't hear him. No. <laughs> um, so feel free to grab her and speak to her and ask her questions. So we'll see you back at one o'clock. Thank you. <laughs>